Ah, oh, you're funneling on in, getting in from the cold, getting in from the, the dusting. That was mm -hmm. pretty. Kind of a nice way to get the morning started, just a little bit of a dust of snow. Welcome to Southfield. Uh, go ahead and find your seat. And uh, I had this realization driving to church that February is almost halfway over. Isn't that great? Yeah. I mean, we yeah. are just a handful of days away from the in like a lion, out like a lamb month. <laughs> And, and before you know it, we'll be into some stuff growing and warmth and all that. Can't yeah, I mean, wait. Can't wait. After the Super Bowl today, I, I stand by my stance that February is the worst month. Once the Super Bowl <laughs> is over, everything February to March just feels dead and dry, which is why I'm glad we're doing Rooted, because yeah. it's going to add some life to this normally dead time yeah, here. Yeah, it is fun. I always get a kick out of the morning of the Super Bowl because you, you know, whatever your team is, if you like, if you're a Buffalo fan, you actually still believe you could win. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's a really good feeling. And by the night, time night is done. One of those team, two teams know it, it wasn't their year, but going to be kind of a fun day. It has uh, messed a little bit. Hey, I don't have a clicker. Did I do that? Is it over there? Just try pushing this, the stand. It'll... Is it over there? Thank you. <laughs> awesome. Wonderful. Good job, Miranda. That's cool. Um, it, it did help me to realize, though, that you, because of Super Bowl Day, it's, it's, led, to, it's led to a whole bunch of shifts that mm -hmm. were found on our, on our update yesterday. So why don't you go ahead and walk through them? Yeah, we're starting, uh, or the first shift, I guess, is with high school. Instead of meeting from 6 to 8 tonight and battling the Super Bowl and all that and all family plans, we're just moving uh, to the afternoon. So we'll be here 12 to 2. I've already ordered uh, some pizzas and lasagna. So oh, wow. uh, cool. you don't need to go out and get lunch unless you don't like pizza or lasagna. If, and if you don't like that, I don't know what's wrong with you. Uh, <laughs> but we got, so we'll have a bunch of that um, from 12 to 2, and then everybody can get on their way. Um, and yeah, I mean, that, and uh, Wednesday night with junior highs is staying the same. So. It does shift a couple other things. So a lot of times our, our junior high band rehearses yeah. on Sunday afternoon right after church, which is, it's kind of fun. You know, church is done, and, and we go out, we do our greeting, whatever, come back in. They're rehearsing, getting more music going. I love that. So they're, they're, off, uh, oh, they're off today. Mm -hmm. And then uh, the Rooted Girls group, that is, their place is the nook in the gym, but if they meet in the nook today, they'll catch a little noise. So they've shifted over to the kinder room. Mm -hmm. So a lot of moves going on because of that. So if you're, you know, if one of those things has impacted you, it's, it's important to know that. Um, we have uh, Rooted. This is kind of fun. So here's the analogy I have for what's going on with Rooted right now. Um, I, I, don't, I know where you grew up. I don't know where you all grew up. But I grew up pretty close to uh, trains and train yards. Um, and my, my house, my growing up my house, the original one, was a couple of blocks away. My grandma and grandpa Pap, you could literally see the trains from their living room. So we were, we were in a pretty industrial sort of area with lots of trains. And, um, and as trains are about to get going, two things happen. One is you'll, you just hear this loud, booming noise as that engine backs up enough to do, 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 do. All the coupling the is couplings, going on, yeah. the coupling of the, of the cars. And then, and then you get that roaring engine noise as the train is about to get started. And, and the exertion that's taking place <laughs> is incredible for it to move an inch and another inch, and another inch. I, in many ways, I feel 
like that's what this week and next week of Rooted are, yeah. where, we're, where we're discovering the rhythm. We're starting, to, we've coupled up, we've coupled up in our groups, we've gotten connected, mm-hmm. and, and, and it was exciting to get connected, and now, and now you can feel that, okay, here we go. We're, the, train is, the train is starting to move. For some of you, the, 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 the slowness of the train is just kind of figuring out, how do I do this workbook thing? Because if, if you were, um, if you're part of just doing this with us on Sunday mornings and you've not joined a group, technically you arrived today and you've already done all five days mm-hmm. of week two, mm-hmm. right? So you know by now that the days are, the, the weeks are divided into five days of devotionals. Each devotional has basically two pages of reading that involve commentary, it involves scripture reading, and stories, then they, yeah. stories mm-hmm. right? And then they have a grayed out box with typically two questions and the opportunity to write out a prayer. Mm-hmm. So, and what we're encouraging you to do is take the time to uh, respond to those questions in a written form, whether that written form is with your own hand or I'm actually typing mine because I would never be able to read them again. <laughs> I'd have no idea. I would make a great doctor. So um, I, I would not be able to read it. So doing that is helpful, but, but it's important. I think for some of you, you think, uh, I'll just do it in my head. You will not fully process it if you don't take the time to get, it, to get it out of your head through a finger. I'm one of those people that originally said, oh, I'm just going to answer the questions. I'm going to have this because I like the blank book look. Uh, and then I started writing. I was like, no, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dive in. I'm actually going to do this. And as I was writing out my first prayer, I was scratching stuff out. Like it was just, it, it looked like an absolute mess. And then the next day I moved and said, you know what? No, whatever I write is staying. So I'm just, I'm working with it because that's clearly where, you know, where things are at and, and where I'm at with, with this journey. And so, yeah, it's, it's cool and neat and messy all at the same time. So, it yeah, it write is. it out for sure. And they, they typically offer about two full pages for writing. And now for some people, that's created great tension. You know, <laughs> I've got to fill two pages. No, they're providing you space. If a sentence answers the question, great. Yeah. You don't need to fill every last blank, uh, blank line. So, but the other thing in there is, so I said typically it has two questions. Sometimes it'll be three or, or even one more. But, but they, they always end with, write a prayer. Mm-hmm. Write a prayer. So not just, not just a verbal spoken prayer, but a written prayer there in your book. That's a different method for some of us. Uh, you come probably from one of two backgrounds. Either you come from kind of a, a liturgical background where you've been used to, here's the prayers we memorize together and say together to God, or you've been in a background that I would call free-form prayer, where you just, you just pray, and whatever comes out of your mouth, you say to God. I think this is, this is in a way, kind of a, a unique and beautiful combination of the two because it, it, it causes you to stop. And I, I've said to the groups I've been involved in, it even made me stop and think, how am I going to address God as I write down those words? How am I going to conclude the prayer? And then it slows down my prayer enough that I'm actually, I'm really thinking about what I'm saying. And I've, I've, been, I've been amazed as I've written the prayers how it has redirected what I thought I was going to say. There's been a redirection that's taken place. So, so I want to encourage you to try that practice. The only other thing about it uh, that I would say, if you're, if, you're doing the, if you're doing the devotionals consistently, 
Let's say your group day is Friday. I've got a group on Friday. Um, you get down to Friday and you realize, oh my word, I haven't done any of the devotionals this week. What am I going to do? Well, the first thing is you're still going to show up at group, yeah. all right? Because we want you to be at the group. But the second thing is I would encourage you to choose one of those devotionals and do one. If you're going to speed root, if you're going to, I'm going I'm to get through all five of these, you're not going to get anything out of it. The questions are really meant for slowing and processing, taking it in. So just do the one and do the one really well. Mm -hmm. All right? So anything else to add on Rooted? And even like the student side, how's that going? Well, it it started off kind of messy. Uh, One, because we had a ton of students and the junior high group is big. So we actually didn't order enough books. So we've kind of had to go through that. But even the... Um, the couple of the books that we did have, we opened them up. We're like, all right, let's start week one. And there's 15 pages missing out of a couple of the books. We're like, what they the heck? They missed a whole section. So, yeah. yeah. So, uh, again, a bumpy, bumpy road to start, but uh, we're getting into, into looking at week one today. We're really excited about that, and I'm Good. looking forward to it. So. Good. I want to I start with communion today, start with that moment of uh, quieting ourselves in the presence of God before we go into the message today. And again, I recognize, you know, we have people joining us who have not been a part of our church before. We all come from uh, different backgrounds, different traditions in terms of communion. You may wonder, how do we do communion around here? For many, many years, I mean, the first 120 years of our church, 120 plus, uh, we, were, uh, we did communion once a month on the first Sunday of the month. You could count on that was communion Sunday. And then, and then we, we shifted. We shifted to doing communion every week. And a, and a big piece of us, that for us is the wording of Jesus is wording of Paul that basically says, every time you do this, you proclaim the Lord's death, burial, and resurrection until he comes again. And so we recognize that this really is, every week communion is a gospel presentation. It's an opportunity to stop and realize that Jesus died to pay for our sins and the sins of the whole world. So we do that. The other thing we do as a a church, rather than waiting for a tray to come to us, we walk to communion. And part of the reason we've chosen to walk to communion is because it's it's a very deliberate act. I'm making the choice to move toward God, to move toward communion. So it's not simply the plate is coming, oh, I might as well take it, it's in front of me. But I'm making an intentional decision to go ahead and move toward that. Uh, during communion, we often have either a slide on the, on the screen uh, for reflection or, or sometimes we'll play a video and there's music playing in order that you can uh, take the time to prepare your heart. So uh, two of the things that are really important communion, I believe, every week. One is to, one is to as Paul says, examine yourself. It, it, is a, it is a weekly opportunity for repentance and reflection, mm-hmm. a weekly opportunity to come before God and say, God, I am sorry. I'm sorry for my sins. I am sorry, and I, and I ask for your forgiveness. And then it's also a chance every week to be reminded that there's someone that loved you enough to die for you so that you could have eternal life. So uh, we invite you to go to communion. We have uh, four different areas of the church, two in the front, uh, at the front tables and two tables at the back. Uh, the one way over here to the side has gluten-free on it, and there's gluten-free available on either side of the stage as well. So... 
Uh, let's take a few moments right now. Uh, we're listening to a song by, by Phil Wickham that quotes one of the most common verses in the Bible. Uh, good on Super Bowl Sunday to, to listen to some John 3.16. Even football player, football fans know John 3.16. So uh, <laughs> reflecting on the love that God has for us. Let's go to communion. It is our prayer, God, that our roots would go down deep into you that we would realize once again that, yes, we are, we are yours. We've come to a place in our relationship with you that we've trusted in Christ as the forgiver of our sins and the leader of our lives. But, but God, at this point, we, we may have drifted to a place of complacency, and it's time to start following wholeheartedly once again. It's, it's time to be drawn back. It's time to come back home and to let those roots go down deep into you and let our lives be built on you. I pray that you will, you will move us during these weeks uh, toward that place, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Why am I here? Why, why in the world are we here? I mean, what, what's the purpose? What's, what's the point? Ever ask those questions? Most days, we just live out life, right? We get up, we eat, we go to school, we go to work, we do our thing. We, we might even have a little bit of fun along the way, but we just, we just live life. But every once in a while, for some reason, we're prompted to reflect a little bit more deeply. We're prompted to reflect a little bit more deeply on those, on those existence questions. It, it might be something serious happens in our lives or to someone we love. Maybe we find out a relative has cancer. Maybe we lose someone that we love dearly. Maybe we go through some kind of a, a financial shaking. Maybe we lose our job. Something, something happens that just causes a, a shaking that, that brings us back to those ultimate questions. Sometimes it might even be a global event, like a 9-11 like a that, that causes us to stop and to reflect more deeply. I'm convinced that while these events may have prompted us, they may have prompted us to ask those questions, that wasn't really what caused the question. It may have caught our attention, but what is causing us to ask the question is a knock. It's a faint knock. It's a knock that's there all the time, but we don't pay attention to it. Jesus tells us that this is what he does. He stands at the door and he knocks. The spirit stirs. And the reason for our existence is awakened by the one who designed us and created us. There's this great story of a divine encounter in the Bible. You're probably familiar with it. It's the story of Moses and the children of Israel. They, you may have known of their captivity in Egypt and the rescue by God through a handful of plagues that are brought upon the nation. Moses is born in, Egypt, born in Egypt at a time that Pharaoh is feeling threatened. He's feeling threatened by the size and strength of this, of this nation within the nation, of this population of non-Egyptians that are living in the land of Egypt. The Bible tells us in Exodus 1 that, that he's worried. He's worried that the Israelites, the Hebrews, have become so strong and so numerous that if there were an invading army and they came in and joined together, they would, they would take over Egypt. 
And so Pharaoh begins a process of oppressing the people. He brings a great oppression, believing that that will actually diminish the strength and number of the people. And just the opposite happens. It's funny, he, he enacts a principle that I think is actually lost in our times today. We are people as Americans who believe in flowery beds of ease. We like it easy. We like it soft. We like it safe. We like bubble wrap. We think that's what leads to a great life. When in fact, trial and adversity and hard times are actually the things that build strength and character within us. Pharaoh sees that his approach is not working. So he begins a campaign, an unthinkable campaign of killing all the baby boys that are born to the Hebrew people. Just think about that for a moment. How cold a heart do you have to have to send out that edict? To say, take newborn babies and drown them in the Nile River. It's in this environment that Moses is born. Imagine, imagine that day that Moses' mother finds out she's going to have a baby. And the dread that came over her heart as she realized this baby is going to be killed unless we do something. And they do something. You know the story. They weave together a basket. And they take that basket and the baby and they place that baby in the Nile River. Would you think about that for a moment? They actually place the baby in the jaws of death. They place the baby in the very place that other children are being killed in order for Moses to be protected and his sister watches from a distance. I'll tell you what, God's mercy is real. And his plan is so amazing. Pharaoh's daughter of all people discovers him. You're reading the story and you find out Pharaoh's daughter discovers him and you think, oh no, it's all over. Let's look at scripture. It says, soon Pharaoh's daughter came down to bathe in the river and her attendants walked along the riverbank. When the princess saw the basket in the reed, she sent her maids to, to fetch it. When the princess opened it, she saw the baby. I love this divine moment. The little boy was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This must be one of the Hebrew children. She knows it right from the beginning. There's no delusion here. She knows this is one of the babies that's being hidden. And you know what else? You know what she hears? She hears a knock on her heart. She hears a knock. She hears this moment. She actually is welding with compassion for this little boy in this basket. The story unfolds. It's it's a great story. The sister is standing there. She comes over. She's like, says to the princess, would you want me to go find someone to help you? Oh, that would be wonderful. You're such a sweet little girl. And what does she do? She goes and gets Moses' mom and brings Moses' mom to the princess. And here's the best part. Every mom would love this. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to let you, I'm going to, I'm going to pay you for taking care of this kid. Really? Really? She gets, she gets to take the baby home, her baby home, raise her baby, and get a paycheck for doing it. This is awesome. It's amazing. Look at the way God works. Later when the boy was older, his mother brought him back to Pharaoh's daughter who adopted him as her own son. The princess named him Moses for she explained, I lifted you up out of the water. Nothing. Nothing, truly nothing can thwart the plan of God. Nothing at all. 
For the first 40 years of his life, the man who would serve as the deliverer of Israel is literally being raised and trained and protected in the palace of the man who sent out the death orders. Now fast forward a bit. Moses eventually gets in trouble. He gets in trouble. He's about 40 years old, and he goes out among his people. And like any good politician, he has been well insulated from the realities around him. And so he goes out among his people, and he starts to see that his people are suffering. And you know the moment there's some suffering that takes place at the hand of an Egyptian, and he rises up and he kills the Egyptian. Pharaoh finds out. Pharaoh banishes him. He wants him removed. He's going to kill him if he doesn't get out of here. And the next 40 years he spends as a nomad and a shepherd in the, in the desert. I mean, think about this for a moment. He spends 40 years being trained in the skills of leadership. He has all the skills, but now in the desert, he's going to have implanted in him the heart of a leader. He's going to learn not just how to be a commander, but how to be a shepherd, how to be a person who guides and nurtures a nation along the way. Catch the next phrase further down in Exodus chapter 2. It says, years passed and the king of Egypt died. And the Israelites continued to groan under their burden of slavery. They're lifting up prayers to God. Their cry out for help, their cry rose to God. God heard their groaning. He remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He looked down on the people of Israel and he knew it's time to act. God's plan has been simmering in the life of Moses now for 80 years. 80 years. We're going to turn the page to chapter 3. I love chapter 3. It says, One day Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock far into the wilderness and came to Sinai, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the middle of the bush. Moses stared in amazement. Though the bush was engulfed in flames, it didn't burn up. This is amazing, Moses said to himself. Why isn't the bush burning up? What's happening here? In the course of his daily work, just like us, he's just doing his daily stuff. He's not out on some spiritual crusade. He's not thinking, today's the day something incredible is going to happen. While he's out doing what he always does, he notices something unusual, something out of place, something not normal. You know what he notices? And this is the verse right here. When the Lord saw Moses come to take a closer look, God called out to him from the middle of the bush, Moses, Moses. I, I want to I give it to you in, in, a, in a little different wording. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, to which he replied, here I am. Do you see what happened? It wasn't enough for the bush to be burning. It wasn't enough to say, wow, that's incredible. He moved toward the bush. He moved toward the knocking. He took steps toward the knocking. Say it another way. When he responded to the knock, it was then and only then that God called to him out of the bush. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, when he stopped to notice, when he responded to the knock, that was when God spoke. 
those questions we started with. Why am I here? Why are we here? What's the purpose? What's the point? I'm convinced that those questions are our burning bush. And God is knocking. He's knocking. Most days, we just tend the sheep. We just do our job. We just go to school. We have a little fun along the way. But every once in a while, we hear the knock. And the next step we take, that next step, is what determines whether or not we hear the voice of God. This week, our our rooted journey is entitled, Who is God? Who is God? I, I laugh. I look at that question. I think, I have 30 minutes to answer the question, Who is God? My word. It would take a lifetime to answer that question. At the same time, let me suggest one simple answer. God is the answer to the question, why am I here? Why are we here? What is the purpose? What is the point? God and God alone not just answers those questions, he is the answer to the questions. Every Bible begins basically with the same four words, in the beginning, God. Those four words need to be addressed by every human being. Every human being needs to look at those words and be confronted by them. Now, let me expand them a little bit. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, he created everything. Everything was made by God. So here's the thing. When I make something, even even something simple, I make it for a reason. I, I make it for a purpose. This past week on Thursday, I made meatloaf. Why? Boy, now there's like an ultimate existential question, right? Why did, why did you make meatloaf, Dennis? What was that all about? My purpose was really simple. We had to eat. We were hungry. We needed food. I had hamburger and pork. I made meatloaf. Nothing horribly profound about it, but there was a reason. There was a purpose behind my creation. In the beginning, God created everything. Why? As a creator, I promise you this. He had a reason. He had a purpose. He had a desire. He had a design. He had a why. Why did he make everything? Well, as I read chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis, here's the answer I get. God created everything because for some reason he desired a unique relationship with the crowning achievement of his creation, human beings. And the rest of the Bible, the rest of the Bible is the story of that relationship. So if God wanted a relationship with us, if he wanted a relationship with every human being, if he is our reason, if he is our purpose, can I ask you this? Why is it such a mystery? Why isn't, it, why isn't it more obvious? Why does it seem hidden? Why does it seem obscured? Well, chapter 3 tells us that God had a desire and God had a design, but there was an enemy set out to destroy the design and desire of God. Humans were given a choice. Do you want to live in relationship with God? Or do you want to be your own God? That's really what, what the offer of the fruit was all about. Do you want to live in relationship with God? 
Or do you want to be your own God? That's what the offer from the serpent was really saying. Do you want to live at the desire and will of someone else, or do you want to grab the wheel and drive? We chose the wheel. We chose to drive. And in that moment, the design and desire of God was distorted and destroyed. So I told you I made meatloaf Thursday. I, I took a risk when I made that meatloaf. We had some leftover peppers from Ozati's. The peppers that they put on their uh, Italian beef. I don't know if you've had those peppers before. They're a little bit of a surprise. You know, when, when, I bite in, when I bite into a pepper that's going on Italian beef, I expect kind of a, a jardinera sort of flavoring, something a little spicy, something along those lines. You bite into these and they're, they're almost, they're kind of candied. They're sweet. And, and, and the first time you bite into them, you go, what's that? What? And, and, then, and then one of two reactions happens. I love talking to people about Rosati's peppers because they either go, I love them or those are disgusting. I want nothing to do with them ever again. I'm kind of on the love side. Having said that, I love everything, even liver. So, um, so I love it, tastes good, and I decided here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take about a quarter cup of those peppers, chop them up, and put them in the meatloaf and see what happens. I'm going to check it out. In my mind, it paid off. I liked it. It was good. But let's pretend it wasn't. Let's say the first bite was awful and the second bite was even worse. You know what I do with bad meatloaf? I was taught growing up to power through it. But my mom and dad don't live at my house anymore. <laughs> I throw it away. I trash it. I get rid of it. I go to plan B. I'm not tolerating a bad creation. If I were God, we'd be gone a long time ago. We would. I'd have crumpled up the whole art project and thrown it in the incinerator. I'd have trashed it and started all over again. Adam B. and Eve B. Here we go. We're going to do it again. So here's what's so cool. God didn't throw the creation away and start over. Why? Because God wanted every aspect of his creation, even the broken parts, to answer the question, who is God? And even after it was desecrated, and even after it was distorted, his next moves answer the question, who is God? When we say everything exists to glorify God, another way of saying that is everything exists to answer the question, who is God? Everything exists to show us another part of who he is by how he works. So the fact that he didn't just trash us, throw us away, and start, so, start over shows us that he is merciful. It shows us that he is loving. It shows us that he's not only a creator, but he's also into redemption. He loves goodwill, and he shops there often. He, he, he loves redeeming used and broken things. He loves to make wholeness out of brokenness. Why am I here why are we here? What's the purpose? What's the point? God. God. That's it. Yet the answer has been obscured by the destructive work of the enemy. And so he knocks. He knocks and he knocks and knocks. He lights burning bushes. He lets the events of our lives be painful enough to cause us to ask deeper questions. 
And he waits for us to turn aside and see why the bush is not burning up. And it is only when we turn aside to see, it is only when we stop to listen that God calls to us out of the bush. He doesn't bust the door open and say, I'm here. He waits for us to open the door. There's a tool that we like to use as a church that I think pulls together all the pieces of what we're talking about today. It's a, it's a short video. It's found on our website, and it's called The Story. It takes all the pieces of the story of God and our relationship with God and brings them together. I want us to take a few moments right now uh, to ponder and reflect as we watch this video. There is only one story that answers life's most essential questions and gives a lasting sense of purpose and meaning. It's the story that inspires all other stories. It's the true story that defines every one of us. This is that story. How did it all begin? Like all stories, this one begins in the beginning with the author, who is God. He spoke everything into being. With a word, galaxies appeared with stars and planets. Earth was designed for life to flourish. Everything God made was gloriously good and breathtakingly perfect. The highlight of God's creation was the first man and woman, Adam and Eve. God entrusted everything he created to his beloved children, giving just one rule. They were not to eat fruit from a specific tree. They lived in loving obedience, worshiping God as their heavenly father and enjoying perfect harmony with creation, each other, and God. Considering our world today, its obvious perfect peace didn't last. Turmoil, war, sickness, troubles. We each have our share. What went wrong? It started when a fallen angel named Satan grew jealous of God and determined to ruin the perfection of creation. Satan took the form of a serpent and enticed Adam and Eve to question God's goodness and rebel against his one rule. In disobedience, they ate the fruit and peace unraveled, ushering in sin and death, which still plagues us today. If we are honest, we are very much like Adam and Eve. We all rebel against our heavenly father, making our hearts heavy with fear, guilt, shame. Our bodies are weary with sickness, disease, and death. Earth is afflicted with storms, calamities, and disasters. Even worse, sin has separated us from God, causing a permanent divide, a miserable separation called hell. The fallout of sin has been catastrophic. It's inescapable with no way to fix it, leaving us all to wonder, is there any hope? The love that prompted God to create us also prompted him to send a savior who would set everything right again. As centuries passed, God shared exact details of the coming savior's birth, life, and death. Everything in the Bible points to this rescuer. Almost 2,000 years ago, Jesus came to earth as God the Son to fulfill the promise. He was born miraculously as his mother was a virgin. Just like us, Jesus grew up and experienced life on earth. But unlike us, 
Jesus never sinned and always obeyed the Father. When Jesus was in his 30s, he began teaching all around Israel, pointing people to God's kingdom and performing many miracles. After a few years, he was wrongly accused and sentenced to an agonizing death on a cross. Jesus lovingly gave up his perfect life as a sacrifice to pay for the sins of mankind. He died a perfect death, taking our place, the innocent for the guilty. But the grave couldn't hold Jesus. Three days later, God brought Jesus to life again. Jesus defeated sin by dying on the cross and defeated death by rising from the dead. Today, Jesus sits at God's right hand as king and judge over all creation. This is the story of rescue God has authored. He invites us through repentance and faith to make his story of rescue the one we trust in and live from. When we do, everything changes. And now, what will the future hold? For everyone who trusts in Jesus alone for rescue, God has promised to restore your heart and set you free from sin's hold. Because God is loving, kind, merciful, forgiving, tender-hearted, and true. God has also promised to make all things new. One day, there will be a new heaven and a new earth, forever free from sin. Everything that causes pain and sadness will be gone. God has also promised to be with us forever. The moment you trust in Jesus, your relationship with God is restored because Jesus has closed the divide sin caused. Getting to know this all-loving God starts today and continues forever. For God's story never ends. You can make God's story the foundation of your life even now by admitting your need for God's rescue, asking forgiveness for your sin, trusting in Jesus Christ alone to rescue you, following Jesus in faith from this moment on. This is God's story. Will you make it yours? Who is God? He's the one knocking. He's knocking. He's asking every one of us the same basic question. How's life working with you in charge? How's it going for you? And he's inviting every one of us to return to his original plan. His desire is to be our God. Throughout our rooted journey, our groups are being encouraged to answer three basic questions. Three basic questions that, that answer the question in each person's life, who is God? The first question is, what prompted you to realize you needed God? Another way to say it might be, what was the knock you were hearing? Or what, what burning bush caused you to respond? For me, my moment came at a very young age. My parents were, I would call them, ethnically religious. I grew up in a Polish Catholic family. My mom and dad were married at Our Lady of Czestochowa in North Tonawanda. Though religious, 
My parents were incredibly unhappy. They were miserable, and they were searching for something more. And when I was about seven years old, they made a spiritual decision that I did not fully understand at the time. All I saw was the externals of it. I saw that we started going to a new church, and that instead of going to church a couple times a week, we were going to Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. Every time church was open, we were there. It was like we were living at church. But I was also watching what was happening at home. And at home, my parents were changing. They were becoming more happy. They were becoming less miserable. There were things happening in their life that I could not help but see. And within months, I knew whatever happened to them, I wanted it to happen to me too. The second question is, describe the moment you came into a relationship with Jesus. How did you come into a relationship with God? I got to tell you, overall, I was a pretty good kid. I was. Most of you would have loved having me as a kid. I was just good. John Beaker talked about it a couple weeks ago, right? He talked about goodness and then how goodness is not good enough. What God really is requiring of us is not goodness. He requires holiness. I was good. I was not holy, but I was good. As I look back on my life, I probably could have been renamed Opie Taylor, you know, the kid from Andy Griffith. I was a good kid. As a teenager, I didn't even stray off and do some of the things that all my other friends did. I was telling a couple groups, one of the things I did that was really, this is my awful moment, okay? My my friends and I, we we were at Ames Department Store, and in the parking lot, there was a cigarette, a whole cigarette laying on the ground, and someone said we should smoke it, and I wanted to be able to legalistically say all my life I had never smoked, so we emptied the tobacco out and put peat moss in instead. We smoked it. It's not good. And when I die of lung cancer, you'll know I died of smoking peat moss. (laughs) It was possible. It was entirely possible that my goodness could have actually served as the obstacle to my ability to see my need for God. But it's funny, looking back, even as a five and six-year-old, I know that God was knocking on my heart's door. Because even though I was a good kid, I always felt guilty. I always felt like I had done something wrong. I always felt bad. One Sunday morning, we were sitting in our old church. It was a church that didn't have a nursery, didn't have a cry room. Babies were in the room with us. And there was a baby crying in the building, although I didn't realize it was a baby crying in the building. What I saw from our second row there in that church looking in front of me was a statue of Mary holding baby Jesus. And I thought Jesus was crying because I was bad. He was crying because I had done bad things, because there was something wrong with me. You know, it's funny, many years ago, we offered a parenting class here at our church. Nate was a little guy at that point. And they taught that for many of us, we do the right thing out of fear of punishment and not out of love for virtue. That was me. I didn't want to get caught. I didn't want to get busted. I didn't want to get spanked. I didn't want to get yelled at. I did good things not because I wanted to love virtue, but because I hated the punishment. Dennis wasn't good because he loved what was right. He was good out of fear and out of guilt. How did you come into a relationship with God is the third question. I came to realize that my goodness was not good enough. I lived with such guilt and fear of getting caught all the time. I lived in fear of being punished. And I realized that though I may have been good compared to some others, 
I was not good enough. I was not perfect. I had to confess my sins and believe Jesus was the one who could forgive my sins. I needed to commit my life to God. And the third question then is, how is my life different since committing my life to Jesus? I could list many, many answers, including what I do today. But, but let me say this. I do not live under the oppression of guilt and fear because I know I am forgiven. I know God's forgiven me. Further, I, I really have experienced this shift within me. I, I don't do the right thing out of fear of getting caught. I do the right thing out of love for virtue. I do the right thing out of wanting to, to please God. That's big for me. You may say, big deal, but that's big for me. It was a, it was a change of my motivation. I want to do what is right for God, not just out of fear of getting caught. In the book this week, as you get to day five, you're going to learn how to have a relationship with God. I like to camp there for just a couple moments before we end. The book says what the Bible says, that every one of us has to admit we are a sinner. Here's the thing about admitting sin sinfulness. It's not admitting that you've done every bad thing in the book. It's about admitting that you've done at least one wrong thing. And that keeps you from being perfect. That keeps you from being holy. Every one of us, you may have my story. Overall, you may have lived a pretty good life. You look around at other people and you go, if this thing's graded on a curve, A plus right here. But God doesn't grade on a curve. He doesn't. Holiness, perfection is the only way to enter the presence of God. And human beings can't do it. Every one of us have sinned. We have to admit that we've sinned. We have to believe then that someone else has to pay the bill. I can't do it outside of me spending eternity in hell paying for my sins. No, what I do is believe that Jesus died to pay for my sins. Because he was perfect, his death didn't have to apply to his sins, so his death could apply to all of our sins. And then it comes down to that, that third letter. These were, these were on our wall at the old building for years. This is part of our common language as a church. Admit you've sinned. Believe that Jesus died to pay for your sin. The third word we chose in the past was choose, because choose makes a lot more sense to a little kid than the word commit. But I like the word commit. You know why? Because I think that we can choose and then we can unchoose. I choose to make meatloaf. Yuck. I don't want it anymore. But if I commit, I'm eating the whole thing. I'm in. I commit to following Jesus. It's not just a sentimental prayer. It's, it's a true repentance, a true change of heart, a desire to live my life for God. It is not enough, understand this, it is not enough for Jesus to offer you salvation. It is not enough for him to just knock. We have to answer the door. We have to turn toward the bush. We have to decide that we want a relationship with God. The ball is in your court. What are you going to do with it? We said one of the reasons for doing Rooted is to have a same-page experience, to share common language, for some of us, when we talk about our, our relationship with God, uh, the wording that we use makes it seem as if we've always had a relationship with God. We were born in relationship with God. 
And while it may seem that way, maybe, maybe we went to church, we were religious, we have no time in our life that we do not have a memory of God, the Bible is definitively clear on this. We are all born in a state of separation from God. Every one of us. And that separation can only be overcome one way, by admitting our sinful state, by believing in what Jesus did to pay for our sin, and by committing our lives to him. You know, even if you can't remember the date, the time, the place, this is what is true of all of us who claim to be a child of God. The only way we can come into a relationship with God is through Jesus. Good is not good enough. Religious is not enough. Baptism is not enough. Confirmation is not enough. Family heritage of faith is not enough. Only Jesus is enough. Who is God? He is the answer to the questions. Why am I here? Why are we here? What's the purpose? What's the point? He is the answer. And here's what's cool about a relationship with God. While he is the answer, it is not as if we discover the answer when we go, check, now it's all done. It's a constant discovery. It's a continual discovery. It's a continual, deeper understanding, not just of who God is, but to actually get to know God himself. We continue to get to know him more and more all the time. The Bible tells us there are three primary ways we get to know God. We get to know him through his word, we get to know him through his son Jesus, and we get to know him through creation, through everything around us. The more we search, we don't just get to know more about him, but we get to know him. I love this as, as we're exploring the Bible. We're looking at the Bible. We're looking at week two as a group of rooted leaders. And Shelly, my daughter, she's, she's looking at Genesis chapter one, a chapter she's looked at a whole bunch of times. And she got so excited. She's like, I've never seen this this way before. I've looked at creation as something that God does, but actually all of creation is an expression of who he is. He creates light, and yet he is the light. He creates a separation between the sky and the land, between water and land. He creates a separation between light and darkness, and yet he is what defines good and evil. He's the separation between the things. He, he creates plants, and they're a life-giving source. And then what does he say? I am the bread of life. I'm the life-giving source for you. He creates sun, moon, and stars to provide life and light and to give us gravity and all these things, and yet he is all those things for us. In the animals, he shows off his creativity. You look at, especially under the sea, why in the world did God hide some of his best creation a mile under the water? And we finally discover it in this generation and go, are you kidding me? And we get to know God a little bit better. In human beings, he stamps his very image. On the seventh day, he is our rest over and over in multifaceted ways, God answers the question every day, who is God? His answer to Moses, I am. I am. He is calling. He is knocking. And the question before us now and always is, who are you, God? Who are you, God? The knock isn't just to bring you to God. The knock is there all of your life. He's always saying, I want you to know me more. When Moses saw that the bush was not burning, he turned aside to see, and God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. 
And he responded, here I am. Are you ready to respond, here I am? We've turned aside, we have to turn aside to see. We have to notice. We have to pursue the question. Don't ignore it. Don't put it off. Who is God? He keeps knocking. Walk to the door. Open the door. Here I am. Father God in heaven, reveal yourself to us. Help us to hear the knock. Help us to hear the knock and open the door and let you in. You will not break down the door. You wait. You wait in great patience for us to turn that knob. What will it take for some of us to finally walk to the door and let you in? Move us, God, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. How appropriate that we would join by standing and singing, make room. Let's make room for Jesus. At our age and stage of life, our house at night is pretty quiet. We don't have a baby crying or waiting for one to cry. We don't have a teenager playing Call of Duty at three in the morning. We don't have anything barking. We have turtles. They're very quiet, very, very quiet. Kim has a clock in our room, and that clock ticks all the time. Tick, 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 tick. And you know what's really weird? It was only recently I'm laying in bed, and I went, what is that ticking? What is that ticking? It's like, it's, it's the clock. It's been there for years. Really. I'm laying there the other night, tick. What is that ticking? It's the clock. What's weird? Our, our house is deadly quiet, and I don't always hear it. But it always ticks. It never stops. He's always knocking. You know, I was going to say he never stops knocking, but he actually does. He does when you open the door and let him in. Stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door... I'll quit knocking. I'll come in and we'll share a meal together as friends. The room is there. Let him in. Let him in. Enjoy your week.